Welcome to the 302nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I'm joined by Sari Altshuler, the founding director of the Health, Humanities, and Society program at Northeastern University. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. Also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at USOdisaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 1st, 2021, there are 3,947,163 deaths from COVID-19. That's globally according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In the United States, 604,714 people have died from COVID-19. In Canada, 26,273 have died, according to official statistics. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Canada's real death toll from COVID-19 may far exceed official tally. It was written by Avis Favaro and appeared in CTV National News June 29th this year. The number of Canadians who have died because of the COVID-19 pandemic is likely double that shown in the official numbers, according to a disturbing new report published by the Royal Society of Canada. It was pretty devastating, actually, and pretty shocking. Tara Moriarty, an infectious disease researcher with the University of Toronto and one of the authors of the report, told CTV News. The report, which looked at excess deaths, suggests that largely racialized communities and essential workers were the ones caught in the crosshairs, often perishing at home and going unreported as COVID-19 deaths. The study reviewed death reports in 2020 and compared them to the expected number of deaths in a normal year, finding some 6,000 extra deaths among those aged 45 and older between February and November of 2020. Assuming this pattern of missing deaths continued after November of 2020, it's possible that as many as 50% of deaths missed being counted as COVID-19 deaths and included in that official number, the report suggests. This could mean that instead of the 26,000 and now more than 26,000 since this report came out deaths, in Canada, up to 52,000 Canadian deaths may be linked to the pandemic. They weren't recognized as COVID-19 deaths for whatever reason, and there are quite a number of possibilities, and they vary by province, Moriarty said. What it really looks like right now is that the COVID death toll is very likely to be double what we think in all regions outside of Quebec. The report detailing this enormous oversight is a complicated indictment of Canada's response to COVID-19, exposing a failure to test report deaths consistently, and to pay attention to marginalized communities. Moriarty said she started to realize something was off while she was tracking long-term care deaths in Canada. I was looking at things like the case-for-case fatality rates in Canada, and the numbers didn't seem quite right, she said. 
Over time, I started realizing that, in fact, there were quite a few more deaths than we had expected. And it, so it took months to sort out, to, excuse me, let me take that again. It took months to sort of be sure that what I was seeing was likely COVID-19 deaths. She explained that researchers adjusted for an aging population as well as the amount of deaths due to toxic drugs and still found a disparity in the excess deaths. Right now, the official data for COVID-19 deaths in Canada suggests that about 80% of COVID-19 deaths occurred in long-term care homes, but the report says that's wrong. Like most other countries, two-thirds of our deaths likely happened outside of long-term care when the elderly living at home and lower-income racialized frontline workers became ill. That suggests that people have been dying in their homes unrecognized with COVID-19, Moriarty said. And for them and their families, for everyone, we need to understand exactly how that could have happened because that's exactly, that's actually quite horrifying. Report also cited a study that had looked at cremation records in Ontario in 2020 and found that there was a rise in at-home deaths with 63% of excess deaths occurring there as opposed to only 30% in long-term care. Dr. Onye Noram, president of the Black Physicians Association of Ontario and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, told CTV News that this report hits hard because the communities affected had tried to raise alarm bells earlier in the pandemic and they were ignored. That's why I cried when I read the documents, he said, because people had been shouting from the margins saying, please look at what's happening. Can you save us? Can we do something? Can we mobilize resources? Can we have sick days, paid sick days for people working in these communities? These cries were not heard. She said, we need to ask why these deaths were ignored, explaining that while the report refers to these deaths as unnoticed, she believes this term is insulting because communities have been speaking up about what they've witnessed and how their community has been affected by COVID-19. It was willful ignorance to ignore what was happening on the ground, she said. She added that many essential workers doing jobs in home care and on the front lines in formal and in informal caregiving tend to be women, and that we may discover that a number of these preventable deaths were women. The numbers aren't just numbers. Those are people. Those are families. Those are lives. And this potentially was preventable and predictable, she said. One of the problems that led to these deaths failing to be counted, according to the report, is that Canada tested 75% less than the average for peer countries early on in the pandemic, missing cases until doctors spoke up, recognizing atypical symptoms. Dr. Samir Sinha, who works in geriatric medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital, published a case report early on in the pandemic detailing a woman who presented atypically and then was diagnosed with COVID-19 two days later. We probably lost a lot of deaths being reported from COVID-19 because there just wasn't any thought to actually investigate those deaths, even in a post-mortem way, just to actually do a test and say, was COVID a factor, he told CTV News. When physicians are filling out death certificates, for example, they'll often actually say, well, the main cause of death was, say, a heart attack. And then they might actually put another condition like dementia or other things with it. But again, if COVID-19 wasn't suspected, and it's very likely that wasn't even factored in as a potential cause of death. Another contributing issue in having accurate death records is that Canada's requirements for filing death reports are lax. 
Every one of our peer countries legally requires deaths to be recorded nationally within a week of them occurring, Moriarty said. Canada is months to years behind. We don't have any requirement for that. If we had been able to spot deaths piling up early on in 2020 with faster reporting, it might have provided a real warning that would have been really important, she said. There's still incomplete data even now, she pointed out. We don't have complete cause of death reporting in many provinces past February of 2020. The standard on how to report COVID-19 deaths also varies from province to province. Another roadblock to accurate data. It's imperative that we learn from these uncounted deaths, Moriarty said, adding that we could still be undercounting deaths right now. This could be very important as the Delta variant spreads, she said. If we don't learn from our mistakes, it could cause more unnecessary deaths in the future. The news report written by Avis Favaro was Canada's real death toll from COVID-19 may far exceed official tally. Okay, I'd like to turn to my discussion for today, and let me introduce my guest, Sari Altshuler. Sari Altshuler is Associate Professor of English and the Founding Director of Health, Humanities, and Society at Northeastern University. Her work has appeared in leading journals, including American Literature, American Literary History, PMLA, and the medical journal Lancet. She's the author of The Medical Imagination, Literature and Health in the Early United States, which appeared with the University of Pennsylvania Press in 2018, and the co-editor of Keywords for Health Humanities, which will be appearing with NYU Press. Sari Altshuler, thank you so much for making time to talk on COVID calls today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'd like to start the way I generally do, just find out where you're calling in from, what the pandemic and vaccination situation looks like there. Yeah, uh, so I'm calling from Boston, and uh, actually, kind of surprisingly, we're doing quite well um, in terms of the United States. I think we have it, the state has one of the highest vaccination rates. I believe that the numbers last I checked look something like over seventy percent um, of people in Massachusetts have been vaccinated, fully vaccinated. Oh, sorry. That's one vaccine, one shot of the vaccine, and uh, over sixty percent are fully vaccinated. So we're doing pretty well. The um, numbers of uh, infections are low, um, and the Boston Globe today re reported that they think that the effect of Delta will be blunted by the vaccination rate. So there's some hope, especially because the neighboring states are also have, have been very good about vaccinating. So fingers crossed, but uh, obviously this is still the middle of the pandemic. And what are the implications for campus? Uh, have you been back? Is this something now approaching, um, you know, full, I guess we're into summer now, but how were things looking at the end of the spring and what's the plan for the fall? Yeah, uh, we the campus, they really tried to keep it open. Um, and so they were testing everyone two to three times a week um, who was on campus, although with some struggle, they finally let faculty choose whether or not they wanted to be on campus. Um, it looks like we will be on campus in the fall, but everybody will be required to be vaccinated. So uh, that seems predictable to me in terms of the spirit of the university and uh, about as good as we could ask for, probably. I've been asking guests who are based in North America, not because the pandemic is over, but because it has shifted to the next act, whatever that is going to be, if they wouldn't mind sharing some 
some memories or associations about the pandemic, I've been particularly eager to ask you this question as a person who's so attentive to, you want to talk a lot about literature and, and narrative, but as a person who's so attentive to narrative, I've really been dying to ask you this question. So what do you, you know, what are your strongest associations with the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think probably what was weirdest for me was there's sort of two two features that, two moments that are weird. I, I think I had a sense of the pandemic and the urgency of it a bit sooner than a lot of other people. Um, my partner's working on uh, a project about historical epidemiology before the <laughs> pandemic and talked to an epidemiologist at Harvard in January who said, absolutely, January 2020, absolutely, this is going to be a pandemic. So we started preparing then. Um, I was then a visiting professor at the University of Paris for two weeks, and I knew I was right on the bubble. Um, but uh, from the end of February through mid-March. Um, and I awoke one morning. Uh, I had had my phone on um, airplane mode, which I don't recommend in the middle of a global crisis, um, to find out that while there had been no warnings about France when I had turned off my phone, um, when I when I had turned it on at you know 2 or 3 a.m. Uh, Paris time, all of a sudden, there was a travel ban announced. I had to get out of the country. So uh, for me, that was really the most memorable thing about the pandemic was rushing to try to get on a plane before I got stuck in Europe. Um, I have a one-year-old, so I really did not want to be, or I, I did then. Yeah. Um, she's older now, but uh, I did really didn't want to be stuck in, in Paris. And then this sort of thought that when I came back, I had a kind of sense of being out of time um, in terms of everybody else's reactions because I, I had to come back and quarantine and myself isolated in my house to make sure that I hadn't picked up anything on the flight. Um, so it was really, I think, very dramatic. Um, and I know that other people's experience of the pandemic was also dramatic, but going home from work and staying home is a little different from, you know, having to rush sure. to a flight. It's, you know, that's interesting because culturally and even distance wise by plane, not that far, you wouldn't think, you know, Paris to be so different, but what you're describing is, uh, it, were the conditions quite different? Like even what the requirements were in France versus coming to the U.S. at that time? Well, it was spreading more rapidly. I mean, now we know that it was also in Boston. But at the time, right. all the numbers were suggesting that in France, there were pockets that people were tracking. And so the numbers looked like they were rising astronomically. Um, now they look very small, but at the time they were really alarming. And so... Uh, even though I know that the travel ban was um, as much political as anything else, uh, it did feel like I had maybe done something a little bit riskier than I than I imagined at the time. Um, but nobody really knew because we didn't have good testing, so it was hard to know where things were. Even that, just reading that um, story about Canada and the detail in there about Canada's lack of testing, and I think, you know, because we've focused on new, other parts of the pandemic now, to recapture that time, it seems to have slipped people's mind a little bit that people literally couldn't get a test. No. Yeah. And so if you wanted to know, you just couldn't, uh, it's, it's so right. jarring to remember that terror that I think a lot of people ex experience. And, and yeah. I hate there that we kind of lost that. Yeah. There was a woman coughing in my row and I, I asked whether or not, you know, someone could give her a mask or something. And she looked, she glared at me and said, I don't have COVID. And I just, you know, <laughs> I think now we'd be horrified by that, but she just, you know, had an assumption about herself that uh, that she wasn't contagious. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, 
I, I think absolutely there was just so little knowledge. The great American talent for self-diagnosis right there She's, in the- She was the French. <laughs> oh, okay, all right, fair enough. <laughs> so I wanna ask you um, about your, your book, your recent book, The Medical Imagination, Literature and Health in the Early United States and, and hear about that project um, to then foreground kind of how you started to make sense of COVID and, and we'll talk about the relationship between that book and this time. But can we start by talking about the book? Yeah. So uh, the medical imagination is really about trying to think about ways of knowing and the way that medical knowledge was produced uh, between the American Revolution and the Civil War. And part of what I was interested in at the time was thinking about a period in medical history where people think, well, nothing much happened, or what did happen was really just a kind of floundering um, and a, a proliferation of other other forms of medical knowledge because medicine was so inept. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't think that's that's a retrospective view that I don't think is particularly helpful. Um, and and so I became interested in thinking about moments of what I called in the book epistemic crisis. So moments when things happen that really make people confront the fact that they don't have complete ways of knowing or understanding a situation where they're grappling to try to think through and imagine. And at the time, people used literary forms, I argue in the book, and were really, you know, forced to be much more imaginative because their available ways of knowing um, failed in the face of a kind of crisis. So uh, the contagious two contagious disease crises that I talk about in the book are the yellow fever epidemics of the 1790s and the cholera pandemics that began at least in the Western world in the 1830s. And say a little bit more, if you would, about the 1790s. So I, I know the Philadelphia case, maybe there were other um, instances of yellow fever in the United States in the 1790s. Um, but one thing, you know, about the uncertainty in Philadelphia is it wasn't, as you say, it wasn't for lack of medical bureaucracy and infrastructure. It There was um, there were hospitals there. There was medical education there. It was the center of med American medical practice. The doctors are constantly fighting with each other, which itself became a source of literary contemplation and, and poetry and writing about even the doctors. So it's not like it was a place without knowledge makers, but even they were engaged in sort of producing some forms of uncertainty. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh in fact, yellow fever, um, there were outbreaks of yellow fever all up and down the eastern seaboard. And um, Cristobal Silva and Catherine Arner have talked a bit about the, the way in which it really was a kind of Atlantic epidemic. It wasn't, we think of it as happening in Philadelphia because it disrupted the functioning of the U.S. government. But it also happened in New York and Baltimore and the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I mean, I think what is different about the 1790s epidemic as opposed to cholera, which I think actually bears a bit more relation to um, to our current uh, pandemic, is that yellow fever was something that people knew about. Um, mm -hmm. they, they didn't know how what it, they didn't know how it was transmitted. They did all kinds of experiments to try to figure things out. There's one great story about this guy Stubbins Firth who. Um, tries to prove it's not contagious by taking the black vomit that uh, was a signal symptom of yellow fever and eating it, putting it in his nose, putting it in his eye. He, he cuts himself and try just to show that, in fact, it's not contagious. And now we know that it's tr transmitted by mosquitoes. But cholera, that was a trying to figure out of something that 
had sort of new resonances in the 1790s context, cholera was a totally new disease. And so I think in that sense, um, a lot of the kind of early thinking around COVID really resembles the early thinking around cholera. Um, insofar as, you know, uh, doctor friends of mine would say things like, oh, it's a coronavirus, you know, it's just, it's just like the cold, right? We, coronavirus is a category that we check off on our forms. Um, right. Yeah, and the same was true about cholera. Uh, people thought diarrhea is something that we know about. This is just a worse form for whatever reason. And then it only became sort of clear over time that it in fact was kind of categorically different. Um, but that was a, a tension that I think um, is really resonant with today. Can, can you say a little bit more about the kinds of sources that you that you rely on for this to sort of sketch out what is at hand for making this imagination? Yeah, so um, so I'm interested in medical sources, but the medical sources actually are full of, of literary flourishes and thinking about what Shakespeare had to say about that time. Um, oh, really? I'm also, yeah, oh yeah, that, uh, there's actually a moment in Benjamin Rush where he says, uh, you know, Shakespeare said this better than I do when he offers four lines, you know, from Macbeth. Um, and that's about a different kind of condition. But uh, but I, I was really interested in those kinds of literary flourishes. And I was interested in how genres specifically, which is to say the kind of shape of the narrative, um, the, the different shapes of narratives actually make different kinds of knowledge possible. And so, uh, so I became very interested in how the Gothic, in particular, I think, um, which was a relatively new um, genre in the late 18th century, becomes really a form for global health and thinking through global health. Um, because, you know, one thing that it really offers is a kind of dwelling, um, a dwelling in uncertainty, but also a sense that, um, that the world that you know, can be, you know, suddenly defamiliarized. Um, and, and it really helps people uh, navigate that. But people used all kinds of, of genres to, to think about this. And so I was really interested in, in the kinds of uses of literary genre in medical text, um, and in popular culture to try to think through some of these problems in ways that uh, traditional medical, what we think of now as sort of traditional medical um, forms, really have a hard time dealing with. So is it that doctors are um, well-read at that time? I mean, that doctors are actually engaged in reading a lot of, lit producing literature, reading literature, or is it that the sort of uh, just the um, sense-making is happening outside of medicine and people are turning to just all manner of types of accounts to explain, including, I'm assuming, biblical and other religious texts to make sense of what's happening to them and not worrying so much about what a official medical pronouncement might look like. Yeah, I, I think it's happening more generally throughout the period, not only in moments of crisis. I, I chose the mm -hmm. moments of crisis because I think that they're particularly illustrative of, mm -hmm. of that kind of work because suddenly there's an urgency to them. Um, but doctors are particularly well-read at the time. Um, and in fact, that really part of the profession was, um, especially for elite physicians, was was showing how erudite they are. Benjamin mm -hmm. Rush, um, most famous physician in American medicine for about a hundred years, said says at one point that he thinks that um, that the act of writing poetry of putting words next to each other and seeing how they fit is, in his words, exactly the same as medical judgment. And so he really encouraged doctors to write poetry. And you would be surprised how many bad poet, bad physician poets there are <laughs> in the first half of the 19th century. It's really, it's really a part of the profession. Um, and, you know, that goes back actually to ancient Greece. Apollo is the god of both medicine and poetry. So there's a long, long history of, of that kind of um, relationship.
I sense a future anthology in the making here. Bad, bad medical poetry, perhaps. No one uh, wants to read it. <laughs> I do. So bad. Uh, <laughs> um, part is so bad because part of it was about illustrating how good they were at the form. So it's very formulaic. You know, you have these mm. like, rhyming couplets and everything is about really tightly controlling things. That's not what we value in poetry anymore. That's so interesting, though, though, a commitment to sort of demonstrating that the forms could be that a person could use those forms, which is, I guess, not that different, as you're saying, Rush, you know, wanting to demonstrate that doctors can think analytically. And, and you know, I think medical, you know, record keeping, there's many other kinds of genres, I guess, that are sort of emerging at that time, which are very formal, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so and, and so poetry was a way of really demonstrating the command of your mind. And just w- one more thing about this that you mentioned the Gothic. So um, I mean, we're thinking about like Poe here, right? I mean, what, who are some of the uh, authors that we should have in mind at this period that's sort of out and about and during the time of the cholera um, epidemic, for example? Yeah, Poe is really, you know, I think uh, the best example of somebody who's really thinking about cholera. Cholera is weirdly um, uh, kind of subterranean in the Gothic writing, in part, I think be- I, I've written actually a little bit about this. Um, cholera's signal symptoms were so disgusting that people didn't often write about it directly. Um, it, because when people, you know, um, vomit and defecate themselves to death, right, that's not really... Uh, um, that's hard to depict, I think, in the in the genres that were available at the time. So you end up with these sort of side uh, side descriptions. But um, but Harry Beecher Stowe actually uh, in her she has a novel Dread, um, and that has really gothic uh, depictions of cholera um, as well. And and Stowe lost one of her sons to cholera um, quite quickly. And so and and one of her other sons says that that's actually the impetus for for Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, so, yeah, so it, I really? think it's, it's sort of subterranean. Yeah. So the Mask of the Red Death is about cholera, maybe? Yes, it is about cholera, I, th- I, I think, um, in part because, and this is a little bit uh, um, around the margins, but I, as I was sort of suggesting, right, there's a, a way in which um, a lot of the writing had to had to go the long way to kind of discuss cholera. But, um, but the Black Death doesn't actually become uh, a a site of interest until cholera. It was kind of obscure. And then suddenly people become interested in this historical pandemic as a way of trying to explain what's happening in cholera. They don't know whether or not it's actually the same. They were both quote unquote Asiatic diseases, diseases Mm. that had come from Asia um, and that were new, that were quite devastating. And so the Mask of the Red Death, which is kind of a, a fictionalization of the Black Death, is there are a lot of hints in the story that it's actually a story about cholera. That's really fascinating. So there, in the in the storehouse of pandemic history, there wasn't a lot there for authors in the 19th century that, for them to choose from if they wanted to find a reference point. They had to really well, I don't search know out they- a little bit. I don't I don't know that they had to, you know, search all that far, but the Black Death, um, it just hadn't been as spectacular a kind of history until that moment. But it but it had enough resonances. I mean, I, I think they had other touch points that they could have used, but because the Black Death felt to them as sort of 
large in scope, as fatal, um, and as similar uh, to, to cholera, uh, th- that became a kind of touch point. And it is that moment that um, in which the Black Death really becomes part of medical historiography and in, in, in a way in which it had not before. And Lenore in uh, The Raven, is she also a victim of, of cholera? You know, I hadn't thought about it that way, but I, I should I should go back and look. I, I just um, as you were talking, I was like, I can't trying to remember if there's any clues, but I can't remember. <laughs> I I do actually think, uh, and I've argued that um, in uh, uh, the fall of the House of Usher, that the fall of the House of Usher is a kind of theorization of cholera. Um, wow. Yeah. So Poe offers this theory that it's uh, that cholera is actually caused by fungus um, that then gets taken up in the medical literature for a few years. Uh, he's qu- quite close with this um, physician uh, who writes about it. There's some international arguments about whether or not who who's actually discovered it, but I think actually the answer is Poe did. Um, wow. But of course, the, the the reality is that cholera is waterborne. Okay, I promise we'll move on. I will ask you every bad thing that happens in a Poe story was it cholera, but I am, I'd love to know that actually. I think that's really fascinating. Just those- he, yeah, he actually writes also the Sphinx is a story directly about cholera, about about and it's a story a bit about self-isolation and quarantine. He leaves New York during a cholera pandemic and um and flees to the countryside but is sort of unsure whether or not cholera is coming to get him. COVID calls listeners who are putting their summer reading lists together just notching <laughs> Putting Poe back on the list, they might have taken Poe off the list last year when they moved through their um, um, through their Gothic lists, and we'll come to that I think in a minute. Get Poe back on that list. Just a quick reminder, um, you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Sari Altshuler about literature and the medical imagination in COVID-19. So let's turn to COVID. Uh, I want to read, you published a really great um, Washington Post piece, um, assuming it's in the Made by History series, um, such a great collection um, of articles. And this was pretty early on in the American experience of the pandemic. You wrote, I'm just going to read a couple lines here, to deal with such uncertainty. So you foregrounded talking about medical uncertainty. To deal with such uncertainty, we might look to writing from the cholera pandemics to make sense of our own anxieties, our own uncertainties. Our own uncertainties swell, exacerbated by our unpredictable president, hidden medical information and failures of testing. We fear the political, social, cultural, and economic unknowns, you write, but we can look to historical pandemics to learn that they are precisely that, unknowns. Oh, I thought that was really also a time capsule of a particular moment uh, in time when this piece appeared. So itself has become a kind of a historical reference point um, for me. And I wonder if you'd just say a little bit more, maybe to extend your argument there about how people can look to these previous eras or previous pandemics, in this case, quite distantly removed in time, to make sense of not knowing, make sense of uncertainty. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what's useful about, especially about the 19th century cholera pandemics, is that um, they were 
events that people lived with for a very long time. And so there really was a kind of um, development of literary form around them, ways of trying to describe experience. And I think that's really what people lacked early in the pandemic was a way of describing what was happening. Um, So in that sense, I think these, these stories can be resources for us. And, you know, it's worth noting that that even the po- the Poe stories, and I, I mentioned Harriet Beecher Stowe, they're not writing about cholera until, you know, years, decades past the first appearance of cholera. So there really is, I think, the development of a way of talking and thinking about what it's like to live with a pandemic um, that we really could stand to learn from. And that's different from the position that we found ourselves in. And in some sense, I think the mid-19th century is a great touch point for this because after that, we have the professionalization of medicine and the rise of um, the, the rise of the medical profession, a kind of confidence in our ability to deal with microbes um, that, that we then, I feel like we suddenly lost with the COVID pandemic, right? Viruses, we thought we knew how to deal with, well, experts did not think that we knew how to deal with them, but other people, um, lay people wandering around did have, I think, a great deal of faith in the medical profession to try to, to control things. Um, and, and that's, I, I would argue, a very generically driven um, faith that to, that comes out of what Priscilla Wald calls the outbreak narrative. We just think that the scientists, we thought that the scientists really would save us. Um, and so going back to the mid 19th century, I think is actually quite useful because it's a moment in which people really discovered that that their um, the medical profession couldn't necessarily save them, and and it was quite devastating. Oh, I can't hear you. Sorry about that. Um, I, just to linger on that for a second, I, I don't find that particularly. I find it fascinating, but also not that comforting, in a sense. Or maybe comfort isn't the right. Word and maybe we shouldn't be looking for comfort in the middle of a pandemic. We're, we're just looking to somehow make make sense of things. But this point you're making that um, that we're going to have to linger with some uncertainty. That the medical profession is not there to give every answer, as if the pandemic is a math problem. Um, it's it is scary. I mean, even as we just talk about it now, to watch doctors dispute um, the president of the United States in public on TV is deeply unsettling. So so just to, like for an example like that, how can the medical imagination sort of be filled in or be useful in a moment like that with Tony Fauci standing at the dais and the president of the United States saying, we're going to use this untested medicine and Fauci's over there just kind of shaking his head. I mean, that's a really just dis- disturbing moment. How can literature help fill in there or what's the use of it in that specific kind of moment? Yeah, I mean, I think in one sense, um, it's true that that's quite unsettling, but we live for a kind of narrative completion that that is always a kind of fiction. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, our desire to have the story be done, to know how the story is going to go, is, I think, a deeply human, it's a deeply human desire, but it's also one that... um, that is always a kind of falsehood. And so that's that's not, you know, that's not an optimistic um, reading of things, but I think, I think that understanding a little bit about how our, what our narrative forms have actually facilitated and also what they have foreclosed is really important. So suddenly I feel like we had to reckon with the fact that the outbreak narrative, um, Priscilla Wald does a great job of talking about, you know, how it works, that 
um, something comes from a, you know, a, a developing nation um, with a population that's that's marked as expendable um, and it comes into uh in in the case of the United States, right, a sort of white Western space that threatens um, that quote unquote civilization, and but then the doctors come and they and they save us. And I think that you know one thing that you're seeing in that moment is the failure is narrative failure. Um, and so I think just attending to just attending to the shape of narrative in that case is actually really really helpful in helping us see everything that was foreclosed by our investment in that narrative. And so that's not, you know, that's not a, a super helpful thing to say, but, but, you know, my, when, when I was talking a bit about dwelling in uncertainty and that the Gothic actually lets you do things like that. Um, one positive thing is that if you're uncertain, then you don't actually know how the story is going to go. And that's both bad and, and it can be good. And I think in the United States, actually, we've seen um, the ways in which it can be good, uh, my my own sense is that, for example, the kind of changing discourse around um, about around racial justice and social justice more generally in the United States, I think that that is an effect of the pandemic. I I think it's an effect of other things as well. But early mm. on, um, at least the discourse that was circulating had to do with uh, with twin pandemics that this, that these were sort of one pandemic. I don't actually I don't think that you would have the president. Um, in his first 15 minutes of office talking about white supremacy and uh, systemic systemic racism without the pandemic. So I do think that there are kind of narrative twists and turns that have to do with the rupture of, um, ex of narrative expectation that have actually been really productive. Do you think that Americans, and I would just focus on the United States for a second, um, they've been, we have watched so many films, read so many books that do have this kind of a neat and tidy narrative completion. I mean, I think of my childhood absorbed by watching, um, you know, crime procedurals and, and medical shows um, and sitcoms where everything it's even it can get pretty complicated in the first five minutes and then it all gets resolved. I mean, was I programming myself to think that the pandemic was going to end in 26 minutes? I mean, I, I think that would depend on how much you had invested in it, right? But that, yeah. but they do a very particular kind of work, and and especially uh, in those shows, they often have actually, you know, one episode that's about an outbreak, and and it follows this really predictable trajectory. And um, you know, one thing that was interesting to me actually going through this was how much people remained invested in the outbreak narrative. And that this was just a playing out of the outbreak narrative, even as we entered a pandemic. And I, I would say that's absolutely not the case, um, that, that there was a kind of epistemic crisis, that people really were floundering for other kinds of stories, even as they maybe use some of the language of the outbreak narrative. I, you know, I would say as a, as a huge fan of procedurals, um, that, uh, that they're extremely comforting. And I don't think that when you watch, you know, a detective show and the body drops at like minute five and the second body drops at minute 45 or, you know, whatever, depending on the show that you watch, I don't think that you necessarily really think that's how the world works. Although, you know, people, people do argue that that's a kind of programming, but, um, but we seek out narratives for, for comfort, nothing actually, very little actually wholly fits into a narrative form. Um, that's not, life is much more messy than that. Um, and so I think that, that it's more about saying we use these narratives to understand what's going on in the world. And 
that really facilitates some extremely important work. I, I'm not saying the outbreak narrative is all bad. It's actually, as, as Priscilla Wald says, like it is actually extremely useful for public health, um, but, it, but it necessarily forecloses other kinds of thinking. And so just being aware that you're always telling a story about something that does certain kinds of work and forecloses other kinds of work is I think itself part of, um, yeah, part of a kind of urgent realization um, that's come to the fore because of the pandemic. I'm really appreciating this conversation in in that that moment in time where those who had the option to lock down, for example, around the world who were not essential workers and going out every day and putting their lives on the line. But the the great majority of us who followed public health, you know, um, prescription and stayed home, a lot of the time, even though we were working and dealing with childcare and everything else, um, people did turn to entertainment. They turned to fiction. Um, and I haven't, early last year, I looked, I mean, the number of book sales went up, obviously downloads, Netflix and all that went crazy. So March of 2020 must, it was a great moment of choosing, I guess. I hadn't thought about it this way until talking with you about the kind of literary forms that people were going to plug in to try to make sense of of what was going on in the world. This is like, I'm treating this like it's some big, you've been thinking about this for months and I'm, this, this is really finally coming through to me that that's a lot of what we were doing is like, well, are people gonna rely on, well, I'm gonna ask you, what were people, what were people turning to? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously uh, people were turning to stories about past pandemics. So I myself also uh, took Love in the Time of Cholera off my shelf um, and and uh, started thinking about and rereading Poe. But I think that, you know, part of what was really interesting to me was some, some, some of the less expected um some of the less expected forms. So one thing I got really interested in, it's going to sound a little bit funny, but um, in the U.S. context, at least, there was a moment in March and April where everybody was talking about Groundhog Day. Um, everything was Groundhog Day. Uh, and, and I mean that not just like people at home who did not have COVID and, and felt like every day was the same, but also, um, you know, essential workers were talking about it like it felt like Groundhog Day. And epidemiologists were saying that the sort of failures in serology testing, this is Michael Mina at Harvard said that it, that it was Groundhog Day all the time. Um, and people who had COVID said that the disease felt like Groundhog Day. And that's, I think, what made it so powerful. This, that's the genre, that genre is called the time loop. And that, the time loop became such a powerful way of under, for, for about two months of understanding the pandemic. Um, in part, I think, because it bore such a close resemblance to the experience of the disease itself. So, and, and the sense of recursion that comes with waves and other kinds of, um, you know, a, a genre that really, helps you think through what it's like to have repeated experiences without a sense of when they might end. Um, it's actually much darker than people, Groundhog Day is much darker than people think it is, um, but uh, but it's also lighter than other kinds of time loops. I was thinking at the time, Russian Doll was another really mm. popular time loop that was available to people, but it was about somebody, it, it, was, it, it was a much darker version of the time loop. And so it was interesting to me that people really wanted something lighter. They wanted they wanted to think that their experience was kind of narratable in a in a um, in, in a Bill Murray comedy rather than uh, rather than you know uh, some other kind of meditation on on endless endless repeating. I watched, uh, having not seen it in many years, I watched Groundhog Day with my with my children 
during the pandemic. And we actually did it. I mean, this would be a total, you know, this is emblematic of that time. We did it as a, get the term used, but you watch it simultaneously with other people who are friends, distant, you know, so we're having this experience of Groundhog Day. And um, it, it's, it's a really dark film. Um, and, and he's, you know, what's happening there, and I wonder about the impact on people making sense of the pandemic. I hadn't thought about it quite this way, but he, he's trying to really confront his failures as a person, um, one by one by one, how he takes his relationships for granted, how he's not happy with his work, how he has unfulfilled possibilities. And as you're watching, you're like, wow, he's like taking on every, and then you're like, what am I doing tomorrow? I mean, there's this strange, you know, interplay of that. But of course, then it ends. He breaks free of it somehow. But that, but that is what people were doing at the time too, right? Thinking that they should use the time to become a better person. They were going to take up baking and do Absolutely. yoga, you know? So I think it really struck a chord. Um, but it, it is positive at the end, but it's positive in a very, in a way that I think is actually almost unsustainable for the movie. You can tell I've thought quite a bit about it. So the end, yeah. Uh, it takes these two career-minded individuals um, and they fall in love and that breaks the spell. And then they decide to maybe get a house and get married and live in a small town, um, which is basically this fantasy about returning to the 1950s, right? That you, right. And so it's, and so in that sense, it's a very um, comforting and also like discomforting depending on your perspective view but the but the movie almost can't even sustain it at the end they you, they have this long kiss and the last and he, could, he says like let's move here they kiss for like three seconds and then he turns to her and he says we'll rent to start and yeah. i and i love that because it's this like he knows that it's unsustainable the movie knows it's unsustainable I hadn't thought of it in that meta way. Maybe it's a, a sort of a statement on American society more generally becoming too wrapped up in, in work and forgetting itself and just living every day as if, you know, you're just sort of walking through it, sleepwalking through it, and then you break through. I hadn't, hadn't quite processed it that way. I, I, there must be a lot of people reaching out to you for reading lists during that time. I know I got a lot of requests, uh, what kind of history, you know, and and history, I'm going to get in trouble with my historical colleagues here. We don't make things up. History is based in evidence, but there's a lot of imagination that goes into imagining the past. <laughs> um, and so, you know, as you go back and read those pandemic histories, you you find that too. So I was making suggestions and reading a lot of, of works that were suggested to me of, of pandemic history. You must have been fielding a lot of requests for uh, literary uh, accompaniments to the time we were living in. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, in part, I, I think I forced, I forestalled that a bit. My colleague and I, um, Elizabeth Maddock Dillon, uh, we created this humanities coronavirus syllabus that that was itself a, an attempt to kind of address that. Actually, um, I got her email when I was on that flight from Paris, so <laughs> about extremely. Uh, um, an extremely specific sense of how and when it started. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think people are seeking different kinds of ways of making sense of this. I, you know, the question about what to read is as much about, you know, do you want to sort of understand this or do you want an escape from it? Um, and so, you know, you talked about procedurals. I think Proced I, well, I think probably cop procedurals are going to be um, not so popular for a while, but uh, but um, but certainly other kinds of detective procedurals, um, but especially historical fiction. I mean, I think so. 
people certainly do want to read about um, accounts, you know, of uh, epidemics and pandemics in the past, but they and how people dealt with them and how they negotiated. But I think also people wanted an escape from that something that something that sort of um, took them out of the kind of relentless crisis of the present. One thing I was happy is that people still asked. So, and I thought that was kind of an interesting feature um, of the pandemic. And I'm thinking about the history here, you know, because all you got to do is go into Amazon or any other search engine and the AI will tell you what to read about the past, what sort of forms of imagination you're going to package in there. But there was still a lot of, and people, I guess, had time to make calls and reach out um, to reconnect. And making book suggestions is a part of sociability that I saw emerging in the pandemic that I had. I mean, it's always sort of there, sort of book club culture is always sort of there, but it seemed like the whole country now got emerged, immersed in this sort of book club culture. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's easy, I think, to look back and, and almost romanticize that, you know, like, yeah. um, but to remember that living through crises is never, <laughs> it's never, you know, as interesting as it was to actually live, to be there at the moment is, uh, yeah. Can you say a little bit about the syllabus, the humanities in the time of COVID coronavirus syllabus? Yeah, I, um, as you were as you were saying, I think people were really looking for resources to make sense of things. In part because all of a sudden something was happening that that people had imagined be, because of the outbreak narrative was done was part of the past. Um, I think since the 1970s, people really thought that. Uh, these kinds of outbreaks were were things that existed only in in the developing world um, that only existed yeah and that had only existed in the past and suddenly they were confronted with that um, that kind of terror up close and so we just wanted you know we knew that at the same time um, Alondra Nelson was creating her own syllabus but that also included you know a lot of social sciences and other kinds of reading and so we thought the humanities have a a really particular perspective to share. Um, and it's different from readings in the natural and social sciences. And so we really wanted to give people a sense of the rich resources um, that philosophers and historians and art historians and film critics and um, literary scholars had to, to offer to kind of make sense of things. And I think as you're saying, right, the humanities and the arts actually seemed extremely important and pressing. Um, in this time of unknowing, as as had been the case, and you know, as I was arguing in the 19th century, but suddenly people thought, oh, actually, you know, the natural sciences don't have all of the answers, or medicine doesn't have all of the answers. Health professions. So let's talk in a little bit more granular detail about different points in the pandemic. Did, did, were you noticing um, different? genre choices in, I mean, I thought I really liked the way you're talking about how Groundhog Day becomes a sort of term of art in public health. I mean, that's really fascinating because it's there and it's a reference point and people can use it. Um, and it stands in for a lot. I mean, it, the kind of metaphors do a lot of work for us in society, particularly when we're trying to communicate under stress with time, limited time. You see some changes in over time, even in the, the kind of metaphors or descriptive language that the news media use. Um, or people's own choices of the kinds of narratives they want to tell about the pandemic, say from the spring as we go into last fall? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, before Groundhog Day, you had all of these sort of apocalyptic narratives. That's part of the outbreak narrative, but there was a sense of dwelling that that maybe the apocalypse wasn't going to end. Um, and so that, that was a really, um, I think, vibrant way of talking about the pandemic. 
in February into into early March um, and mid March, then I think you have the time loop. And then out of that, you know, I do actually think that the Gothic began to reemerge as a kind of way of thinking about the pandemic. Um, I remember reading uh, an article in the LA Times um, that was talking about how the way that COVID works and that SARS-CoV-2 works in your body is is that it sort of transfigures your cells into zombie cells that mm-hmm. um, the, and there's and I read also an article in the Times about um, uh, you know about the kind of time lapse between what you can know about where that COVID is always there before you know it is even if you have the best testing in the world because of the lags between you know mm-hmm. when you get infected when it can show up on a test you know how long it takes to get the test back you're talking about a week time lag um, and so uh, and so they were talking about sort of hidden infections and they didn't know where it was going to go next and it had this really gothic sensibility about it so I think um, I. Early on, certainly people were talking about Mask of the Red Death and the Gothic, um, but I, I actually think it, the Gothic has been a consistent thre- thread through through the pandemic into the fall um, as things got bad again, because the Gothic is really good at, you know, talking through what it's like to, to be caught. You know, if you think about the sort of classic 18th century gothic novels where it's a woman caught in a castle and you know and and she can't escape um the horrors that are happening um and that's that and and they're different but they feel the same and and there was i think that sort of sense of recursive horror um one thing i will say that that really struck me and i found very humbling was uh the emergence of black narratives about in in the u.s about about the pandemic and those to me i, I felt I felt very humbled by them because, because you know whether it was um, in the Times, people talking about how how the way that COVID was moving was really about slavery, um, or or thinking about the kind of uh, familiarity of COVID. Mm-hmm. That seemed very different to me than I think that a lot of the narratives I've been describing are really white narratives um, and that there was a realization in the black community that, in fact, this was very familiar. It was a different disaster. But again, it was going to disproportionately affect black people who were going to be left to bear the burdens of the disaster. Um, and I and I felt really chastened, like, oh, here I am thinking about Groundhog Day um, and the African-American community is like, this isn't new, <laughs> you know, like right. this is Yes, the structural horrors of slavery continue to, or slavery continues to structure American experience, no matter what, like the particular topic itself is. The obituary, which is, uh, it's not unique to the United States, but it's such a feature of United States newspaper culture. And obituaries have become maybe almost in some ways the dominant literary genre of this time, and I've talked about them on COVID calls with other guests, but I'm curious what you think about obituaries. I mean, now do, sort of dominating those sort of lists of names with with photos, and then you know going inside to find these recurrent series in, in every major daily newspaper in the United States, I think, has had a series of, of obituaries. And I think about that, and then to connect that to your previous point, the obituary of George Floyd um, which is, I think, probably one of the most widely read documents of this time as well. And it is not, as you say, it's it's not a narrative. I mean, there's closure to it, but it's not. It doesn't fit in with a sort of Hollywood depiction of how bad things are going to end. It just the story is uncertain, and it's 
it's hard to read, and then it ends in the way that we we know it ends. And so I, I wonder sort of a little bit more about about how those kinds of stories, life and death stories of individuals factor into this. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I that I that I think was really interesting was around the um, hundred thousand death mark in the United States, there were uh, attempts to kind of think about the obituaries as as data, but also to render the data personal. And so, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about obituaries um, is that there, there's just this relentless attempt to make individual to, to as, as actually, I think um, the story that you read at the, at the beginning about uh, the Canadian experience of, of COVID, there's an attempt, a relentless attempt to try to make the numbers mean something. And the obituaries do, I think, a lot of that work by really returning the individuals to the story at the Boston Globe certainly had its own version of um, trying to think about, and the New York Times, trying to think about what the number 100,000 means. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think I think that it's a um, <clears throat> a difficulty uh, in in a situation like this. How do you honor the individual life, um, even while you're overwhelmed by the numbers? Um, and it, it doesn't have a, <laughs> there's no easy answer. So obituaries are, are in some ways for, quite formulaic um, and, and in their sort of overwhelming accumulation, um, both, both offer individuation, but also I think offer, turn into data in a way that can be discomforting. I wonder, um, you know, just thinking about the use, uh, I don't even know how to talk about this, the use of obituary. I mean, it's got me thinking about um, some of the limits of, of what can be described in the middle of a pandemic. So there have been this interesting analysis of, of a problem of obituaries. So this is before the pandemic, but of people who die of opioid addiction. Right. And the sort of the convention of obituary around opioid addiction and, the, and the, the problem of talking about it. And so what can and can't go into an obituary. And I've thought a lot about that as a sort of broader metaphor for our time. And it, what I mean by that is that you probably had this experience, too. Somebody will relate to you something very human. My brother got married or or, um, you know, something good happened at work. And then there's this sort of caveat. They say, I, I feel weird talking about that right now. Or I don't, or something bad happens to them, but not terrible. Like mm -hmm. uh, I broke my arm, but you know I don't have COVID. And and I wonder. I've been trying to think about ways to even conceptualize this or talk about this. That, and it may be another place where we have to go beyond the data and reach for some imagination and some literary forms to help us. But we do feel a little bit confined in what we can say in the midst of a pandemic. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true because the the overriding narrative is about the pandemic itself. So, right. so having any other kind of <laughs> experience, narrative experience within it becomes uncomfortable um, if it doesn't if there isn't a kind of meaning making within the pandemic, right? Oh, I'm I'm doing this as a way of demonstrating that life continues during a pandemic, or you know, it, it, I think if you can fit it in that way, then it seems really comfortable. But um, but if but having a sort of separate experience seems so difficult. I mean, I, um, I personally knew a number of, have known a number of people who have died since October, um, and a sort of shocking number and, um, and none of them from COVID, uh, and, and just trying to think about how to, how to talk about that or, or how to make sense of it is really, um, 
has been, as you as you say, very difficult. How how do you talk about sort of seemingly or really tragic deaths um, in the midst of something else that seems to really like kind of hijack the narrative completely? It's really, I mean, I, I will say, and and this is, I think, one way of thinking about this. Um, long ago, I thought a lot about how in biography, it's very hard to talk about the body. Body just mm. doesn't fit in biography. Either you're writing a pathography, like a story of a disease, or it's a line, right? Like, but it's very hard to talk about how uh, about things that happen to the body if you're talking about anything else. And so, I think this is a kind of extension of that, right? Like, it's hard to talk about anything else as you're talking about um, as you're talking about the pandemic because disease it just doesn't fit all that well into other kinds of narratives. But I wonder, I mean, is there some some literature um, that we can turn to for that? And I think of genres of, uh, and I've been resistant to the war metaphors that saturate our time, but but here goes, that um, people who've written about sort of daily life in wartime, not at the front. Mm-hmm. And and I felt like maybe that's a, something we can turn to at this time to try to just develop some ways that people can talk about their normal everyday experiences. Some of them might even be medical. Many of them might be medical and traumatic, but not COVID. Right. When COVID is the dominant frame, the dominant sort of disaster frame that we're running with, but there's a lot happening underneath that doesn't fit in that. Yeah. And I think, you know, for a while that seemed extremely risky. I was I was personally worried, sure. that, for example, you know, the political crisis that we were also experiencing that was not you know, in the US, which was not COVID related specifically, that people would not be able to think about both things at once. Um, that it mm. that especially the stopped time feeling of COVID um, in the time loop, right? That you that you would get stuck so much in the experience of COVID or whatever it is that was happening that that it would become very hard to think about the fact that other very serious things are happening um, at the same time. I don't I don't know the answer. I think I think we have a hard time. I think because that narrative pull is so strong, we have a hard time talking about it. But when you think about other kinds of experiences during war, when we talk about, for example, literature produced during the Civil War, um, we think about things that were about the war or studiously about home during the war. It's really hard to think about literature that, you know, didn't have anything to do with the war. Um, and, and that's, I think, a... Uh, yeah, um, just a, a kind of coping mechanism um, or a brain structure or something. I'm not. I'm not sure exactly why it is that um, that's true. The other kinds of metaphors that you see people turn to throughout COVID. I mean, beyond war, you know, battles in the front and the virus as uh, mounting its attack and all this kind of thing. I mean, that's at hand. We live in a militaristic. We've always lived in a militaristic country, so those metaphors do a lot of work for us, even when everything is going along just fine. What are some of the other uses of language that you've been paying attention to? Yeah, so I've been really interested in the in the wave metaphors, in the attempts in last June to kind of think about a forest fire instead of a wave. Um, and uh, actually, David Jones has a great... Um, a great piece in the Boston Review about the um, the shape of, of pandemics, but you know, one thing that I became kind of interested in about about the wave and the forest fire um, uh, as metaphors. First of all, they are all about the outbreak narrative. It's it's all about trying to conjure a sense of urgency, um, something that need that's almost uh, you know it, that's above the human, um, but that's, you know, natural, uh, that needs to be combated. Um, so I think, yeah, so, so, um, I became really interested in those, 
metaphors, um, in part because, again, of what they obscure. Um, the wave metaphor, they see, they're seemingly natural. But the pandemic, of course, it's part of nature and humans are part of nature, but but it really was generated by human action and so um, and and propagated by human action and um, and you got some sense I think in this sort of like flattening the curve that that there was a call to kind of do something about it. I think the forest fire metaphor was actually also about trying to you know conjure some sense of individual responsibility. Um, but you know, but one thing that I thought was so interesting about it was that. Um, I hate to use the word interesting when it's quite devastating, but but these are the literal forces of climate change. So, uh, you know, how is it that, that we're using these metaphors to talk about the horrors of something that then in their reality, in terms of climate change, we actually can't see them as horrors and disasters. Um, I, it just seemed that the the sort of confluence of those things of people who, you know, sometimes are, are um, kept inside their houses because of COVID, but also because of the smoke coming from the mm-hmm. from the fires that are raging in the mountains um, in California and, and who then are experiencing these kind of brownouts. So then they're being forced out of their homes um, at the very moment at which they're being told to, to stay in them. Um, I think those are those moments where the waves and forest fires, where the kind of literal and the metaphorical meet in these really uncomfortable ways. Um, and And I, you know, probably too much to hope that people will see that the kind of um the friction there but it it seemed to me so uncanny to think about the actual waves and forest fires that threaten people's lives that can't be seen at the scale that they um really at the scale that they really are at the same time as people are using them as metaphors to try to suggest scale and magnitude did you see much experimentation um, in the use of language? I mean, where, do you see descriptions? I mean, I think of you as a person who's probably consuming media about the pandemic and you're reading for, you're reading for things that other people are not paying as close attention to. Were, were people taking risks? Were there certain news media or uh, other artists who are out there and describing the pandemic in uncomfortable or strange to us ways that don't fit into these metaphorical conventions that grabbed your, that grabbed your attention? And, and I'll, I'll give one Example, although it's only come out recently, I'm making my way through this. The comedian Bo Burnham has this new piece, this Netflix special called Inside, mm-hmm. um, and it's it, it's gotten kind of it, it's an interesting piece. And, and I don't know if people have watched it um, yet, but he it's a it's a meditation on the ways that a lot of the thinking about the pandemic is very formulaic. And mm-hmm. then in various moments in the piece, he tries to break free of it entirely and talk about other things that are running through the pandemic, um, you know, media conglomeration, for example. And I thought, and it is into, it's interesting in that regard because he's trying to change the conversation about certain things. I don't know how successful he will be as one person, but I thought, well, this is an attempt to get beyond the sort of metaphorical strictures that we've been trapped in a bit. Yeah, that that's fantastic. I, I mean... I- I think I maybe more was looking for the ways in which the forms were being used repeatedly, but with different. Mm. So maybe I was I was actually seeking out the opposite. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, I think that you know one of the things that interests me is the ways that that people are unaware of how language is actually giving shape to their ideas and the ways that they communicate things. That example I used before about Michael Mina using Groundhog Day as a um, as a way of talking about serology testing, is this is a um, 
a moment in which people aren't thinking about how the narrative and uh, and me- and metaphorical um, forces that are really like kind of cult- at the cultural level, not at the individual level, are are shaping the way that they're understanding experience and and in turn shape shape action. So I guess that's what I was a little bit more interested in. Um, mm. Although I will have to keep a, an eye out for people kind of experimenting almost up on time in my conversation today with Sari Altshuler about the literary imagination, the medical imagination and COVID-19. Um, and I wanted to just get to a couple other quick things. One, um, one is you have written about the need for the humanities to play a, a stronger role in medical education. And um, I'll put a link up for the piece that you've written about this. You argue that the uses of the humanities in medical education, and and I think I wonder if by extension STEM education more generally, um, goes beyond sort of what you call instilling empathy, that it has a role to play that goes beyond just, I I don't know how else to say this, but like turning doctors into human beings, um, which makes a lot of bad assumptions about doctors to begin with. But I am sort of curious, like how you find your way into this discourse about medical education. Yeah, I mean, I think I hope that the conversation that we've had is really illustrative of of the kinds of things that the humanities do. I mean, I, I actually think that <laughs> I, I often joke that um, people who think that reading more books makes you more empathetic have never been to a faculty meeting. Um, <laughs> because it turns out, right? I mean, yeah, uh, it, it's I I don't have a lot of faith in the idea that that that's actually what the humanities do. I think instead, um, what the humanities are really good at is, for example, showing you the way that narrative is is actually shaping the way that you're thinking about things, um, or showing you what the historical precedents are that you really would be well, you know, uh, that it would be worth your while to know before you uh, undertake particular kinds um, of decisions about about public health, about global health, right? Oh, well, how did that work before when we tried that kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, or the kind of ethical uh, um, ramifications of uh, of particular kinds of choices. I mean, I think you can think about techno-optimism, right? Like, uh, okay, like we have these narratives um, about how technology is good and going to solve all of our problems, but actually, right, it, it really blinds us to a lot of um, the kind of ethical concerns that we would be better suited thinking about in advance before before people are harmed and then we need to think about them. But that's not really how, for example, health technology works. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I am a strong believer in, um, in the humanities. The issue has been that because the humanities are not great um, in terms of uh, fitting into the kind of quantitative analysis that STEM often relies on, um, then suddenly it seems like people make the argument, oh, the humanities are not, um, are not valuable because of that. Cause you can't show me in a graph what the humanities do. And the, and the answer is that the humanities actually is a, a set of tools that, that are complementary to, uh, to the analytical tools of, um, for example, evidence-based medicine, but they do something different. So trying to, you know, evaluate them in that way is actually, uh, you know, kind kind of a fool's errand. That's not what they do, um, and so they can't really be evaluated in that way in any meaningful way. So, yeah, I hope that people think a little bit more seriously about the kinds of analytical tools that the humanities offer, um, and hopefully, some of the examples we've talked about uh, are useful in that way. 
Absolutely. I think in, in my discussions um, with colleagues who are, who are in medical education or in engineering education or like the institutions I've worked at, I've rarely had anyone, I can't think of ever, has anybody say, oh, I, just, I have no use for history or I have no use for literature. It's always a time issue. It's always, I just don't have time or in my education, we, every single hour was taken up. Um, and so we just didn't have time to do that. So, or another way of saying it is the last time I read a book for of history was in high school, and I didn't realize it was going to be a, a value to me. So in some ways, this feels like a battle for the curriculum. And yeah. the humanities have, we haven't totally lost that battle, but it's 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 a losing battle, at least in, in the last few years in the United States. How do we turn that around? I mean, I don't ask you to speak for the entire medical profession and curriculum, but still, are there ways to make some inroads in this discussion? Well, I, I kind of had hoped and that, that COVID was one, you know, one moment where that might be mm. possible. Suddenly, suddenly, for example, in medical schools, they were asking people who teach narrative medicine and history of medicine to teach more, right? In the manifest, um, you know, illustration of the failure of, of medical knowledge in other ways, I think uh, it became clear that people were really searching for something else. So just a, a last little, little small question for you. Are we going to see a COVID genre is, is there something <laughs> i don't think so i think we're, no. i think we're gonna see you know people turning back to some of the historical genres i think those things take a really long time to emerge so if we do i think it'll be 20 years from now just a reminder that you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls most weekdays at 5 30 p.m eastern time and i want to thank my guest sari altschuler for wide-ranging, really interesting conversation today, and um, really appreciate the thinking you're doing and the writing about this. Thanks for taking time. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Stay healthy, everyone. We will see you next time on COVID Calls. Mm-hmm.